some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs their attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Mike Olson. Welcome to Mike and Mike's Excellent Cross Canada Adventures. But the new music was one of the very few places in the country that promoted Canadian artists. And I do remember the simulcasts from the Elma Combo. And it was actually in Toronto at some of those shows. This is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of my Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Today's guest is one of those people who embodies the concept of reinvention. He's been described as the patron saint of music. He's worked in all aspects of the music business, although weirdly enough, his first few jobs at Much Music had actually nothing to do with music. He's crossed the country something like 20 times. He's hosted three shows on Much Music. He's launched the Halifax Urban Folk Fest. He manages bands and most recently oversees one of the hottest music venues in the country. My guest today is my good friend, one of the stars of Mike and Mike's excellent cross-Canada adventures, Mike Campbell. So before we jump into our interview, I need to thank you so much for choosing to listen to the show today. Also for subscribing and for reviewing the show. It's really helping spread the word about reinvention of the VJ. Also, I have to tell you, I love getting all your feedback. I'm getting emails from you and private messages, comments and social media. I read them all. And it just, it, it feels really amazing knowing that you're loving this podcast, probably as much as I am. Now, if this is your first time tuning into the show, let me give you just a bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ podcast is my up close and personal conversations with some of the eclectic and talented personalities you may have grown up with on Much Music. Some of them I worked really closely with, with like our guest today, while others came after my time. And, you know, while all of our personalities and approaches were really different, there's one thing that we all have in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then we left the sad part at different times for different reasons. Each of us went off on our next adventures. And, you know, it's that story of what happens after much, the reinventions and the resilience, the luck, the tough times, and the perspective. That's what intrigues me. So my chat with Mike Campbell is probably going to be a bit of a trip down memory lane for you, but I'm also hoping that you find some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes for you to get what you want in life, what you need to reinvent or deal with tough times, and maybe even redefine what success is. I know that these days, a lot of us are going through some challenging times. And uh, as we grow up, we're forced to, to reevaluate our priorities and our choices in life. Maybe what Mike has gone through will inspire you in some small way to look at your life with new perspective. And now it's time to introduce today's guest from Halifax. Please welcome my old buddy, Mike Campbell. How are you, Mike? Eric, I'm great, Erica. How are you? I am so good, and I'm so happy to talk to you. First of all, I got to say, kind of pissed off at you. Uh-oh. Okay. Mike? You are sitting in the famous 
Tiki Lounge. Am I right? That is correct. Explain what the Tiki Lounge is. Well, my Tiki Lounge, um, when I moved to Halifax, I bought a house, uh, which is one of the things that was virtually impossible for somebody in my position uh, to do when I was living in Toronto. And uh, in the backyard of the house was a 20 by 20 foot garage built out of um, two inch non-dimensionalized lumber, probably built in the 30s. It was absolutely beautiful building, but completely impractical for parking the car in. So one day I got up and my roommates at the time had piled everything that was in the garage out in the backyard and informed me that we were about to embark on the renovation of the garage into an office, which is something I'd been talking about for seven or eight years. And uh, it has since become my office. Uh, it was my office when I worked at much. Um, I don't know if you can see, probably it's hard to tell because there's chairs in the way, but behind me, there's a bar. Um, there's a beautiful glass block wall. It's fully insulated and heated. Uh, it has everything except plumbing. And it's an absolutely perfect place for a home office. And over the years, especially when I was doing the much thing, it's become a drop-in place for many, 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 many Canadian international artists, a great number of which I'm sure you know. Okay, well, you know why I'm pissed off at you? Because you've never been here? I've never been. Mike, how many times have I been in Halifax? Hey, Mike, I'm coming to town. Never an invitation to the famous Tiki Lounge. I think that's because probably you were very, very busy when you were here, as I recall. You did find time to drop into the Carlton, though, and that was That's sweet. right. And that's right. A great many of my staff were very excited to see the <laughs> famous Erica M. in the Carlton. Uh, and I think you actually had stuff to do. Otherwise, I would have uh, twisted your arm, kidnapped you. As uh, you may recall, I was kidnapped once on a trip with you to Regina that we were on. And uh, pulled you into the tiki for some fun and frivolity, which would have made the next morning very difficult on you. <laughs> so, Mike, I think what I've been, I think I've waited how many, over 30 years to tell this story about how you and I first met. Because we met way before much music. Well, certainly a couple of years before much music. Oh. At least because I don't know if you remember this or not. You better. <laughs> we, <laughs> we used to play baseball together in Ottawa. Yes. When I worked at the record store, I worked at Records on Wheels and was friends with Peter. And Peter invited me to join the baseball team. And the baseball team was it was it music industry people? I can't remember. It was just a bunch of just a bunch of freaks. There were a bunch of music industry people involved. Uh, a lot of people that worked in record stores, and I knew most of them at that point in time because I had worked in record stores in Ottawa. I used to manage a treble clef record store in the Carlingwood Mall, and uh, so there were a bunch of folks that worked in uh, for Carlingwood. There were folks that worked at Records on Wheels. Uh, there were some uh, tremendously colorful characters that didn't really have anything to do with the music business, but it all um, kind of revolved around a local pub downtown called Alfie's, which was below a restaurant called the Marble Works, which is one of those feast places. And uh, uh, playing softball was an excuse to get together so that when the games ended, we could go to Alfie's and drink beer and play darts. And I... 
I was one of the boys. You showed up there uh, to play softball. I think you were, you've been to Ottawa U taking communications or something, I think. That's right. And then at the end of the summer, you buggered off to, uh, as you put it, uh, go to work at uh, City TV in Toronto, I think on the switchboard or something. That's right. Yes. And I stayed in touch with my friends from Ottawa and worked at City TV answering the phones and working at the new music, which was the coolest thing. I was answering the phones for Jeannie and JD and just sort of warming my way in and About two years later, there was buzz in the office because Chum, which owned City TV, was applying for uh, the broadcast rights for a music channel. And in order to get this music channel, you have to go before the CRTC in these very fancy hearings and plead your case. And so there was a call to everyone who worked in our small office at the time, if you know anybody in the music business that you think would be well-spoken and you know present in front of the CRTC, let us know. So I went, oh, you know that Mike Campbell guy, he was really smart. He, I know I was on a baseball team with him and I know, he, but he was in the music business, wasn't he? And so I put your name forward and somehow you got chosen And I remember that Nancy Oliver and John Martin were freaked out because there was no way in hell that one of young, because I was 20 at the time, or 22 at the time, that one of my friends would be well-spoken enough to present professionally. So they were worried that it was my friend. And in the end, you blew everybody away. Tell me what happened at um, at that time. Well, my recollection of it was uh, I had been working at Attic Records, the Canada's at the time, Canada's largest independent record company before I met you. And there was a downturn in the music business in the early 80s, and I wound up getting laid off. Uh, And there was not really much point applying to other jobs in the music industry because people were getting laid off because the industry was in the dumper. and had not come out of it yet because MTV had launched in the States, but its effect wasn't quite known. So I started my own business uh, called Art Attack, which was a shrink wrap framing business. Right, I forgot about that. And I was doing that in Ottawa and commuting back before I had a place in Toronto with my girlfriend and I had an apartment in Ottawa, and I would go to Toronto on the weekends sometimes, but mostly I was in Ottawa. And uh, so I was busy at work one day, and you called me and asked and told me about this application for Much Music, which at the time thought was the dumbest name I'd ever heard, uh, but did realize it was an anagram for Chum, the parent company, so I kind of got it. And you told me what it was about and asked me if I'd be willing to write an intervention letter to the CRTC. Right. It was the letter. That's it was right. The letter. So I said, as I would, um, I worked at Attic. And of course, Attic had a lot of domestic artists like Triumph and Teenage Head and Johnny and the G-Rays and the list does go on. Um, but the new music was one of the very few places in the country that promoted 
Canadian artists. And I do remember the simulcasts from the Elmo Combo. And I was actually in Toronto at some of those shows. Uh, I used to be upset because they'd take your beer off the tables when they were doing it. But uh, everyone appreciated the amount of attention that uh, City TV paid to the Canadian music industry. So when you asked if I'd be willing to write a letter, I said, absolutely, I would. When do I have to have it? And if and unless my memory completely fails me, and I doubt it, it was like two days later, it was due at the CRTC. Of course. So, yes, of course. So I basically had a day to do it. I was so busy at my work, there was no way I should have done it. But I'd never been involved with the CRTC before, and I was curious. Plus, I really did think that, that City TV had the best chance because I knew that they could get this thing from, from zero to 60 in about 20 minutes, whereas anybody else applying would have to set up an entire television station. It was going to take them forever. And MTV was always making uh, was already making huge inroads via satellite dish to a lot of Canadian households. And I knew that because we used to go to bars and had satellite dishes specifically to show MTV. And we were completely blown away by it but i thought that uh you know city was the one that should get it they've been doing the work in the past so i sat down to compose a letter and for some of your younger listeners that involved a typewriter carbon paper <laughs> if you can imagine and uh, you make a mistake on one of those babies it's not like going to your computer and just you know cutting and pasting and deleting and doing all of that shit you actually had to write the letter and it was a considered letter, um, so it was many pages long. And uh, so I needed a copy for City TV. I needed a copy. No, City TV needed two copies. I needed a copy for the CRTC and one for me just to hang on to, which I've since lost, I'm sure. So I sent everything off to the station, and then that was that. I didn't think about it at all for a couple of months. And then I got a call from the CRTC saying, um, you wrote a letter of intervention on behalf of Much Music License for a music channel. Would you like to appear at the hearings in person? <laughs> That's and when all shit broke, all hell broke loose. Like, they were, oh my God, Erica's <laughs> friend. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm, the people that I wrote the letter on behalf of do not know me from a hole in the ground. Um, but so I didn't play I, baseball with Erica M. <laughs> but I did play baseball with Erica M. Uh, I could have been anybody off the street because I'd written the letter. I had the right to appear at the hearings. But I was smart enough to at least check first. So I called the station. I didn't even know who I was calling. I just eventually got a hold of, um, I think it was Ron Waters. Right, for sure. Who said, well, we are going to be in Ottawa to meet with the CRTC uh, um, on such and such a date. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about it. Um, would you come to dinner? You can bring a friend if you like. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I had a friend kicking around at loose ends, uh, another friend who played baseball, Chris Hudson, who you may remember. And I said, yeah, I'll drag Chris along just to be, you know, my sidekick at this thing. And uh, so I had dinner in a beautiful restaurant in Hull, not too far from CRTC headquarters. Uh, so it was Ron Waters, Moses Neimer, and Dennis Fitzgerald, who's the general manager of City TV. And uh, we and just had a you, conversation. Mike, how crazy is that? <laughs> well, pretty goofy. Uh, <laughs> and we just had a conversation about, you know, what I was doing, uh, what I thought the future was going to be, what I thought 
that something like Much Music could do for the industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that wound up going like two hours. And uh, at the end of it, Moses looked at me and said, we would love for you to appear at the hearings. Um, so I waited around for the call. Um, I got a call. Uh, I, I forget what day of the week it was, but the CRTC said, can you come in tomorrow afternoon? And I went, sure. Uh, so I went down there and sat in all afternoon and was not called. And then was and then had to come back the next day. And I wasn't called until the very end. I was like the last intervener. I was also the only private citizen who intervened in, in person for any of the licenses. They were all, you know, Canadian Association of Broadcasters and advertisers and all kinds of other like-minded folks, but no other private citizens. How old were you at that time, Mike? I was uh, 29 or something, I think. Right. That makes sense. And, and um yeah, because I was so well-spoken. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I got called up in front of the panel and sat down at a table and read my letter word for word. That's it. And then I thought that was going to be it. And then the commissioners questioned me for like 20 minutes, something like that, at least 20 minutes. And at the end, they said, thank you very much for stepping forward. And we hope that at some point you'll be able to get a job back in the music industry again. Because I told them one of the reasons that I was doing what I was doing was... There were no gigs in the music industry. So I got up from the table, they closed the hearings, and then every other applicant came running at me with their, with their stuff, like their little pamphlets and their books and their applications. And it was like, no, 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 I just did this for chum and then forgot about it again. It was an interesting experience, um, like a really interesting experience. And then I forgot about it. And then... Uh, uh, I started another company in Ottawa called Fire for Hire, which was an independent promotion company. This is something I noticed when I worked in retail in Ottawa, that the sales offices uh, for all the major labels, and there were many more of them in those days, were in Montreal. And the promotional department, the public relations people, were all in Toronto, and they didn't really talk to each other. And even though Ottawa was a city of about a million people, it really wasn't getting the attention that it should. So because I still had contacts in the business in Toronto, uh, I started this company where I would contract myself out to labels to help work records when their artists were coming to town. Uh, so as a, for instance, when Huey Lewis's album uh, Sports came out, I went to all the record stores in Ottawa and I went through the, the Huey Lewis sections and did an inventory and made sure they had stock. And they sent me display materials, so I put displays up and stuff. And then on the day of the show, I, uh, along with Cam Carpenter, who you know, uh, who was at MCA at the time, uh, we drove around Ottawa to various radio stations and had Huey Lewis do uh, sports. So they do the sports on the radio station. That's so cool. Yeah, and then I went to the show, and then after the show, I took the band uh, to Barrymore's to see another person that you know, Tom Wilson, and his old band, the Florida Razors, who were playing at Barrymore's uh, to about four people. It's a club that holds about 300. So this is like 1984. Is that right? This is... Uh, 83, 84. This is like, yeah, this is, this is 83, yeah, 83-ish. So, uh, so that's the kind of thing I would do. 
you know. So Huey wound up getting up and playing with Tom, and it was a it was a real thing. Like ten of us that were there, it was one of the coolest things ever. But that was the kind of thing I was doing. So I went to Toronto for Canada Music Week to promote my new company. Uh, I was still doing the shrink wrap framing thing. This is a sideline thing called Fire for Hire. And uh, unbeknownst to me, like at the lunch break for the session I was in, they were announcing the winner of the license. (gasps) Really? Seriously. So I'm sitting with a bunch of friends and the CRTC announces that Chum has won the license. Moses gets up and uh, does the speech. You know, this is going to be the best thing ever. You know, much music, blah, 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 blah. And then they break for lunch. So I get up to try and find Moses just to congratulate him. You know, it's like, hey, man, not that I ever thought there was any question, but, you know, congratulations. So I find him and he's with uh, Ron Waters and Dennis, who I had, lunch, I had a dinner with in Ottawa, though those many months before. And he looks at my name tag, which says fire for hire on it. And he says, um, well, he thanks me. And he said, oh, by the way, uh, do not underestimate the impact of your um, intervention at the hearings. And I see your name tag says fire for hire. I don't suppose that means man for hire. And I just kind of looked at him like, what? And he said, I think it's, I think it's admirable that you're doing, that you've started your own companies and stuff, but I think you'll go farther if you come work for me. And I went, Really? And he said, and, and he said, Ron, give me your card. So Ron gave me his card, Ron Waters, son of Alan Waters, who owned Chum at the time, the family that owned Chum Group. And uh, Ron, and, uh, and, uh, Ron said, you know, like, give, give me a call. You know, let me know what you want to do. So I walked back into the room. Apparently I was white as a sheet. And I sat down with my friends and they said, what is, are you okay? You seem a little shook up. And I said, well, unless I miss my guess, I just got offered a job at Much Music and everyone freaked because everybody wanted a job at Much Music. Of course they wanted a job at Much Music. So I didn't really know what to do with that information. I didn't know what jobs there were. I hadn't worked in television before. I mean, uh, I had a fair idea about what might be available, but the only thing I could think of was like a DJ job. So I sent a letter off. Uh, a kind of a resume with my music business experience and stuff. And they wanted an eight by 10, I assumed. And the only, the only eight by 10 I had uh, was by a friend of mine who was in photography school doing a project on Diane Arbus. And her photographs were all like hyper, hyper uh, close-ups. You can see every pore on the face. And uh, uh, a few months earlier, I'd been, running from the house I was living in, or a couple of years earlier, I've been running from the house I was living in to the laundromat in the wintertime. And uh, uh, I put my clothes in and I was running home and it was trying to get there fast because we were having a party at the time. And I was running in a, like a long great coat with my hands in my pockets and I turned a corner, my feet went out from underneath me and I landed on my face. So I have this color photograph of this, my, the right side of my face all scabbed up and scraped. People thought I'd been in a fight. And uh, so Chris had me uh, uh, get up close to his camera with a cigarette. So there'd be cigarette smoke and all the rest of it. We took, a, took an eight by 10. So that's, what I sent, that's what I sent in with my application. 
And of course, I didn't hear anything back from um, anybody that much. And then Ron Waters phoned me one day and said, look, I've got an opening in my department as uh, affiliate relations rep. Uh, and I'd like to offer you the job. And I was going, I don't know anything about cable, except I hate it. And he said, <laughs> and that, what the hell is affiliate relations? Right. You guys were in the corner. Right. And we were in the basement at one point in a hallway. And uh, so I said, um, yeah, I, I said, well, I don't know anything about cable, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Ron said, it's okay. It's fine. You're smart. You'll figure it out. Can you be in Toronto on Monday? This is a Wednesday. I think in July of, of uh, uh, 84. And I said, okay. So I turned around to my friend, Peter, who I ran the art attack with and I, my uh, friend, Peter, my dear friend, Peter. And uh, I said, give me a dollar, gave me a dollar. And I signed over the business to him and said, sorry, cause I was leaving him with, you know, this business to run by itself. And I took off and I went into the office um, on Queen, on Queen street East on the Monday and on Wednesday, oh yeah, on Monday, they go up and I find Ron Waters. It gives me a book. I forget what it's called. It's a big binder, all the information of all the cable companies in Canada. And then two days later on the Wednesday, I was on a plane to Vancouver with um, uh, Nancy Oliver, Kathy Hahn, and, um, and of course, John Martin, the people that were afraid to have somebody like a friend of yours speak from the commission <laughs> because the Canadian uh, Cable Television Association convention was out there. And on Friday, I was in standing in front of a ballroom in the Hotel Vancouver with uh, 500 delegates telling them what much music was going to be. <laughs> it takes a very special person to be able to do that. And there, I'm not being facetious for a second, Mike Campbell. Mm. You are a special guy. And that story, no one knows that story. No, I don't tell that story very often. That's because you are incredibly bright. You're very passionate. You're very articulate. And you are able to assimilate information. And you're charming. You have such an amazing ability to connect with people. You disarm people. And look what happened. And to me, like, for people who are looking for opportunities, that's a great one. When someone asks you to help or for help, frickin' do it. When I talk to students, and I have on occasion, and yeah. certainly I did when I was at much, I'd go to, you know, places that had broadcast schools and that kind of thing. I'd do them often with JD back in the olden days. And me. And you. And, uh, you know, quite often, you know, the first question everybody asks is, how much money do you make? Which is just like, okay, you shouldn't be in this class. Uh, but the second comment was, you know, there's several things about that story that I, that I find um, hugely interesting just in the human experience. One, if Peter had invited you to play softball, none of this happens. That's right. And secondly, if I was so busy and so disconnected that you would phone me and ask me to write a letter, and for some reason I thought, well, I don't have time or what's going to come of this? Like, I didn't do it because I thought anything was going to come from it. Yes. I did it because it's an experience I hadn't had. And why not? And I also believe that they should have the license. So there were a couple of steps there that if uh, those things hadn't happened and I hadn't responded to your call with action, 
uh, my life would have changed irrevocably. And I have no idea where I would have went uh, uh, or where I would have gone. Um, English. Uh, perhaps uh, I'd be a billionaire. Perhaps, perhaps you would have been way successful if I perhaps I'd be rich. But I decided uh, you know to, to to follow this path where it took me and it took me to some very, very interesting places, you know. And there were a bunch of things about that affiliate job that kind of suited me right down to the ground. I was an Air Force brat, so I was born in Vancouver. I've lived all over the country. Uh, my, my dad's idea of a summer vacation was load the kids in the car and drive across Canada. And I mean, drive across Canada, like the whole thing. Uh, so I did that a bunch of different times. So when I was going out to visit people at, you know, visit cable operators, my job as affiliate relations at the time, uh, as you know, but many of our, uh, any of your listeners might not, it cost money to get much music when we first started. So it was a pay service. So somebody had to go out and talk to the cable companies and convince them that A, it was worth people paying for and B, help them to market the service so that their, their uh, customer service reps could sell it to their customers and we could get a decent subscriber base so that we could grow. So, so you, would, you would take us, so you'd take me or JD or Mike or one of you would, would, one of us would go on the road and we were kind of, um, you know, the honey for the advertisers or for the, the cable company to, you know, get to schmooze with the stars, so to speak. But also we were sent out into the field with you to talk to people who were from that city, mm. to build community. There was this very unique, I think, brilliant approach to create a deep relationship with the viewers. So you would take me to clubs. We'll talk about that later on, <laughs> Mr. Campbell. We know about that. <laughs> you, you would take me to different clubs or take me to schools or I would speak at different schools. And people got to know us as people, the on-air people. Mm -hmm. And people started to fall in love with us. And it was such an incredibly brilliant grassroots approach, which is the exact antithesis to every major broadcaster. They still, to this day, push. They're the most important, and we will listen to them. But Much Music and City TV never had that approach. It was, we are you, and you are us. And we were never allowed to have any airs, you know, like oh, the no. on-air people, we we were treated like shit. Like you treated us like shit. And I mean that with respect, sort of, in the sense that it was like, come on, get up, let's go. We got to go have breakfast with these guys. We got to go over there. We got There was no hair, no makeup, no, none of that. It was, you know, we, we flew economy and, you know, ate in shitty restaurants and, but it was awesome. We were... <laughs> Right. Like it was well, this. The thing, like this the, the thing about the VJ stuff. Um, and I pitched it hard because it cost money. Yes. Obviously. Which they but, didn't like to spend. No. They, well, there was no money for anything. And I pitched it hard because I discovered that. Especially that first trip with Roberts. I mean, I even I even had tour T-shirts printed up 
that I gave the cable affiliates that were especially great to work with that uh, it was called a sleep is for wimps tour. And I listed all the cities that we went to and uh, like the schedule was insane. We'd get up at six in the morning, we fly, we get into a place, we do a morning uh, meeting with the customer service reps at one of the cable companies. Then I'd take them out to lunch. Then we go to a place where they were selling our merch which, as you might recall, was like Sears back in the olden days next to the lawnmowers or something. And stitches. Yes. And then we would go to uh, and then we would go to the, the second cable company in town and then we would go to dinner and then we'd go to a club and throw a party and stay there till two in the morning and then get up and go to the next city at six. But not only do we fire up the, the customer service reps who certainly in J.D.'s case were generally young women who were very impressed with J.D. as they should have been. But every major media outlet at the same time, we'd get like a color photo on the front page of the entertainment section of every major newspaper for free. And that is the kind like you can't well, you could buy that kind of advertising, but it was well beyond the budget that we had. And it and that and then it also helped to create a sense of, oh, so this is what the country is about with the VJs that hadn't traveled that much in it. And I was lucky enough to know most of the country already. Um, and another little known fact that you probably know, but you might not, because um, I always wanted to take cameras on the road uh, with JD. Well, JD at the time, Chris didn't want to go anywhere. So we did with JD before we uh, before you came along and Mike Williams and everybody else that I made the same tour with. Uh, but I thought that we should be shooting video flow uh, on the road. And JD agreed with me. But they wouldn't give me cameras half the time because they said they didn't have any. And at the time, much uh, City TV as well was using three quarter inch camera gear, which, again, anybody who's not of a certain age will have no clue what I'm talking about. But trust me, it was horrible. It was terrible. The amount of crap you had to carry around and it was shitty quality. And heavy. And oh, my God, those cameras were huge. Yeah. And you had a big recording deck off your shoulder and stuff. You had to have a <laughs> tripod, all this shit. So I went to Ron and said, well, they won't give me a camera. So uh, Ron said, well, let's buy one for us, the marketing department, which is the ages I was under. And we bought the station's first beta camp, uh, which was the future of broadcast quality at the time. And we had been, I, my department, my budget paid for the first beta camp. So where do you think that beta cam was the first time I went to use it? I'll tell you where. It was in Africa with some band called Refugee uh, that the new music had taken the camera and buggered off with. <laughs> and, when it, know, it, and when they brought it back, it was full of sand. and had oh. to be repaired. <laughs> Let's talk Regina. I'm going to tell a little story and then you could tell, I'm going to tell it from my perspective and then you tell me because Memory is a is a funny thing, right? And we yep. remember things differently. But as you mentioned, each of us would go on the road with you and we would meet people and go to bars. Now, as we both know, man, do I hate bars. I was probably your least favorite travel mate because I was no fun. True? No, you were plenty of fun. You just didn't like bars. Okay. All right. So... You said, let's go to this particular bar, or we had to go to a bar. There was a party of some sort. And there was this really handsome guy who, 
agreed to be my chaperone for that night while you were off, you know, meeting people and, you know, spreading the much word in your style, which was having a drink or two. Was it the morning or at night? You got, okay, you got kidnapped. What happened? As part of our usual VJ tour thing, I was buying lunch for a bunch of people, including radio folks, newspaper folks, cable company folks at this upstairs restaurant in Regina. So it's lunchtime. Was I there? You were sitting at the table with me. Just as my food arrived, I could hear this huge ruckus on the stairs. And four or five guys ran up the stairs. They had balaclavas on. They had uh, um, uh, battery-operated water pistol machine guns. And they came flying up the stairs. They looked at the room. They looked at our table. And for one desperate moment, I thought, oh, Jesus, no, because I knew it was friends of mine. And uh, I thought that they were going to go after you, but they (laughs) didn't go after you. They came immediately up to me, dragged me out of my chair, and then took me back to this place they called Pylon Central. It's a bunch of well-known lunatics in in Regina. One of them was uh, uh, the weatherman at the local TV station. One of them um, was a Rhodes Scholar, weighed 300 pounds, Dick. Uh, Cornish, who was a social worker, and the other guy was Doc, Mark Doherty, who was also a social worker, who incidentally is now the Speaker of the House in the legislature in Saskatchewan. <laughs> He's third term, third term member of provincial parliament now. Uh, anyway, they took me back to their headquarters, which is just, you know, their crash pad where all of them lived. They sat me in a chair, and I kid you not, they made me drink beer for hours. And I'm protesting the whole time. Like I'm sure you were. I'm sure. You were like, oh, no, please, no, stop. We have things to do. (laughs) (laughs) Erica's supposed to, like, I've got this whole schedule for Erica. They said, don't worry, we've got Erica taken care of. Don't worry about Erica. I said, well, I have to be at the keg at, like, 5 o'clock because I have a whole bunch of other people I'm buying dinner for. So they promised to get me back to the keg at five. So they delivered me back to the keg at five o'clock. I've got another 12 people or so I'm buying dinner for. You're there as well. And um, they'd they'd actually organized a band to play in the keg because we were there. That never happened. Uh, One of the guys in the band, I think, turned out to be Graham Yates, who we know from much music. He wound up working at, uh, or Bravo or something. And uh, uh, anyway, they were playing. And I'd had a lot of beer in me, so I had to go to the bathroom. Every time I had to go to the bathroom, I had to walk by the bar. Guess who the bartenders were? The same guys who kidnapped me, and they were members of the rugby team. So I would walk by the bar, and in those days, my hair was fairly grabbable. So they would pull my, they would grab my hair, pull me backwards over the bar, and then pour whatever they happened to have. I remember that. Into my mouth. I remember that. And then... And I was aghast because I'm, I'm so straight. You don't know these and, guys. <laughs> and I'm watching this because I'm sort of on my own because you're the guy who sort of takes care of me when we're on the road, especially when there's drunk guys around. And yes. there's my protector 
who is getting more and more blasted. Okay, continue the story. Well, it was not like it was my choice. These guys are outweighed. I know, it's terrible. Outweighed, outweighed, out, Regina is a special place for that. Those guys <laughs> have done way worse stuff to me <laughs> since then uh, on subsequent twips. But anyway, they dragged me back to their house, completely hammered at this point. Um, they tried to give me to their female roommate, Aaron, who was the manager of the keg at the time. And honestly, I think I was fighting, but it was more like I was probably just useless at that point. They threw me on a couch to sleep. And at the end table, at the end of the couch was a parrot that just kept going (laughs) all night. That is true. But I passed out. And then I woke up with Dick, the 300 pound guy shaking me and going, Mike, you've got to get to the airport. That's right. We had to catch a plane. I was like, where the hell is Mike? Campbell. So he put me in his car, drove me to the hotel where I opened the door and reached in. And my bag was there because I never even had time to unpack in the first place. So I just grabbed my bag and got to the airport. Luckily, the airport's really close in Regina. It's a five minute drive. And I saw you and I was like, oh, thank God, Erica managed to get herself to the to the airport. I think they had a cameraman with us too. And, and, and you were like absolutely totally relieved to see me because you had no clue what had happened to me. That you had the plane tickets. I had the plane tickets. There you go. That would be another good reason to want me to be there. But what we didn't talk about was those bastards had, there was some sort of a, uh, I, I don't know, like they were, they were gambling that one of that, the cute guy, who was my chaperone would bed me that Hmm. night and you in a drunken state. I did not put money on that. You might've, but you said, you said, don't do it. You were like, (laughs) don't do it. Don't do it. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And then the next morning he said, where did you, you asked me, where did you sleep last night? Or where, where's Buddy? Like whatever his name was. I was like, I don't know. He's probably Rob Middleton. And he said, and you said, oh, thank God. I said, what's going on? He goes, they were all betting that he would get you in bed and you didn't do it. He said, and I think you said, I bet against because I know you. I would never. That sounds like Rob Middleton, and uh, Rob uh, wound up running MTV Asia for a while. You might be happy to know it. Maybe I should have bet him. (laughs) I missed out. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) I have wanted to talk about that story for so long. And that that was really an amazing time. Like, that was just crazy and you were so much fun to travel with except that one time when you disappeared (laughs) but over the course of those trips i I met a a lot of local people yes i mean some of them i knew before much but not like the regina guys i met on the first trip with jd and with the rom rom waters came along that trip people loved you loved you not not loved love you yeah, you you find these characters and you have in every city you have your people. It's incredible. So that played well virtually everywhere we went. Uh, and I got a lot accomplished in that job. Um, you know, we we transitioned to basic cable at that point. We were becoming a force. Um, I'd managed to, you know, 
get Chris Ward to agree to come out on a trip, mostly because he was putting out a record on the label I used to work for, and he wanted to do promotion for it, and this seemed to be the best way to do it. Did he uh, get drunk? What happened on the road? Come uh, on. I think Chris probably had a few drinks a couple of times, but he was working really hard because he was busy trying to get the uh, uh, A. Alana Miles record done and a record contract in place. So he was telling me how that was coming along on the whole trip. So I was like, what? You do what? And he was playing me some of the tunes. And I'm going, holy shit, man, this is Jesus. This is, are you kidding me? You wrote this stuff? Holy shit. And uh, uh, so at the end of it all, I think it wound up, we were doing, um, we were doing a big ticket with Honeymoon Suite in Halifax. And the night before they were doing a show at the uh, Aiken Center, which is the big arena in Fredericton. And we still had a bunch of stuff. To, I'm trying to remember exactly why we had to do this, but uh, Tom O'Neill, the director of the show, uh, needed more time in Fredericton and said, can you find us a way to Halifax tomorrow afternoon? So we didn't have to leave when everybody else left. And I went, no, there are no flights, but I can charter a plane. So I found a guy with a four seater Cessna and, uh, uh, Gary Lalonde, bass player from Honeymoon Suite, heard that we were taking the plane, so he didn't get on the band's bus. He said, "I said, yeah, there's one more, there's one more seat if you want to get on the plane with us." Uh, so Gary, uh, Tom O'Neill, me, and JD uh, flew in this Cessna, I think, uh, out of Fredericton. On the flight, I'm talking to Tom O'Neill, the director. I have a photograph of the two of us. JD's in the co-pilot seat. He claims he landed the plane in Halifax. I don't know if they actually let him do that, but they shouldn't <laughs> have. And, uh, and Tom was talking to me and he said, you know, you know a lot about music. And I said, uh, well, you know, I worked in the industry for a long time. I was the kid with the best record collection everywhere I lived. Um, but I people made, in at much didn't know you as a music guy. You were the cable yeah. relations guy. You're the people party guy. Yeah. Nobody really asked me about it. I mean, you know, anybody that was on the road with me knew that. Uh, so JD did and you didn't like all the people I worked with. And Tom was beginning to find that out because of the conversations he was having with folks. And he said, uh, you know, you should do uh, you should do a demo tape. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, just grab one of your camera guys and just do a 10 minute thing, tell a story, do anything um, and give it to Moses. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think you should do it. You know, you could be, you could be an IR guy, you're, you're smart. And uh, I went, okay. So I phoned, uh, got back to Toronto and phoned uh, Tony Wanamaker, one of our camera guys. And certainly one of the guys that I used all the time on my trips across Canada. And uh, came over to my place like on High Park Avenue on a Saturday afternoon, nice sunny day. And I had no real clue what I was going to do. Um, but I wound up telling a story about, you know, how I came to buy the first Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record. And then going to then driving to New York for the first time to see Tom Petty at the bottom line and 1977 or something. So I tell the story, but I kept screwing it up. I was so nervous. I mean, what a lot of people don't realize, and you certainly do, 
uh, you can talk to a human being all day. Well, when it comes time to just focus and talk to a piece of glass and a camera, that's a completely different thing. You're it's right. It's really easy to screw up. It's, it's, it, you have to trick yourself. And I never did master it. Uh, JD was a genius at it. Uh, but almost everybody else, and you really had to work at it to do it. So I kept screwing it up. And Tony suggested I have a drink. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be fine. So we go to the kitchen. Well, he's been on the road with you, so he knows yes. how you work. Yeah. So pound a couple of shots of Sambuca and then sit down in front of my record collection and pull this record up and tell the story to the camera. You know, and this is I, I never bought records by people I'd heard of or heard on the radio. I always bought stuff that I'd never heard of. So look in the miscellaneous Ben. This is miscellaneous P. I don't know what this is. Coolest logo I've ever seen. Guy looks rock and roll, leather jacket. It was punk rock days. Look at the back of the record. Everything looks cool. Recognize the name of the producer. The song titles are all cool. Seems a little short, but the lead guitarist player's name is Mike Campbell. So yeah, I'm buying that record. Then it turns out to be one of my favorite records of all time. Anyway, I take the tape. Tony pops it out of his camera, gives it to me. I just put a thing on it and, and give it to Moses secretary the next day Moses calls me in and says um I want you to be the national field reporter and I was going what's that and he said uh well he doesn't uh, know he just made it up that's what he does sure well he'd heard like there were lots of stories coming back from the VJs and various camera guys about how much fun we were having on the road and that kind of stuff, or, you know, it was a great trip and all this kind of stuff. So Moses wants me to just randomly go around the country and shoot stuff for rock news or rock flash. And I could totally do this with a cameraman because basically when the VJs were doing stuff, I was field producing for the most part. So I knew how to do it. I knew how to do a throw. I knew how to do all the rest of the stuff. But uh, I'd since met uh, Mike Rhodes, who was working on Rock Flash at the time, who was desperately trying to get out of the building. It was driving him crazy. We were in the new building at this point. And uh, so, so I lied and said I couldn't do it. I probably needed a producer which got Mike sprung. And then the two of us were going across the country. We were shooting these things fine. We we're getting pieces of news and stuff, but it's not like today, you know, you don't just go to a satellite uplink and, you know, bing, bing, bing. And the editors got it in front of them. He had to courier the tape to the airport and then it had to fly. And then, you know, the airplane had to not lose it. And then it had to arrive at the station at six and somebody had to remember to give it to an editor. So by the, the time physical tape had to be carried, oh my God, there's no internet. Oh, yeah. No, hell no. There was nothing even approaching it. So, uh, so by the time our, our items were getting back, they were stale, you know, this is not really news <laughs> anymore. It was something else. And we also Rose and I also had to tell the camera guys, when you come back to the station, just shut up. We don't want, everyone to know how much fun we're having doing this because most of the stuff that was happening to us was well after the camera was put away. It was just being out at night and going to places, meeting people and, you know, they drag us out to see stuff and do stuff. And we go to parties. It was great fun. So after about a year of this, um, we got called to Dennis Fitzgerald's office and I'm coming from the marketing department and Rose is coming from downstairs 
basically, at this point. The creative space. And, yes, the creative space. And we meet outside Dennis's big glass office. You're both getting fired. Damn straight we're getting fired. There's no other reason Dennis could possibly want to speak to us. And uh, so we sit down and, well, you know Dennis, so he's a very imperious sort of figure. And he starts off, and it certainly looks like we're going to get fired because he starts off with like how much money it's costing to do this, how little of the stuff that we're doing is actually making it to air, although he did admit it wasn't through any fault of our own. And he said and he had been hearing stories about what's been going on on the road. So then we were sure we were going to get fired. And he said, so one of the biggest problems is that we don't really have time to promote the stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you a half hour show and you're going to go out and do what you've been doing, but shoot the stuff that you haven't been shooting. Wow. Now that was not his idea. There's no way. Cause that guy did not have a creative bone in his body. Where did that come from? I'm not sure whose idea it was, but it sure as hell wasn't John Martin's because he didn't want to have anything to do with us. So we get booted down to John's office and Mike and I have a brief talk after we do the dance of joy that we weren't getting fired and we're looking at each other going, did what just happened happen? Do we just, did they just give us our own show? Yes. So we go downstairs to have the meeting with John, who's not happy to see us, doesn't want to have anything to do with us, really. I mean, Mike was a very good friend of his, but he didn't he did not cotton to me for the longest time, mostly because I came from outside, I think. And he didn't have any control of me. So that bothered him. But he'd been told that we were giving a show. So there we go. So we go over to meet him at uh, the, the Friar or whatever across the street. And he sits down and he goes, and I'm saying, okay, so the way I see it is, you know, we can go into all these places. We can do like a rock and roll survival guide, you know, like where are cool places to, to, to stay that aren't particularly expensive? You know, where can I get, where are the music stores? Where can I get guitar strings? Where are the cool clubs in town? Where's the late, great, uh, late night eatery, you know, a place we can go for food at three, all this shit that you would want to know if you're a musician or a music fan traveling to one of these towns. And he goes, nah. And I said, well, then what? He goes, I want you to do a cross between real people. That's incredible. Uh, I forget what the global show that Phineac was on, like all of these shows. And I was just looking at him, go like, give me a for instance, like what should we shoot? He goes, well, go to some high school and blah, 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 anywhere. Get the camera on top of the building, get the entire student body out on the field and spell much music with their bodies. And well, that's a start. And then, and then that was it. And he said, Oh, and the show's going to be called Mike and Mike's Excellent Cross Canada Adventures. And Bill and Ted's adventure was, and it was like, No, don't, 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 please don't do that. And I don't know, that's terrible. No. And he said, That's, that's all there is to it. And so we started off with this vague show idea, the name we didn't want. And then, we got called basically and told and we're told that the show had to start on April 13th or something, which was completely arbitrary as far as I was <laughs> concerned. And, and we asked Nancy Oliver about it. She said something like something to do with like Gail Goldman's mother had died or something. It's like something terrible, but what's that got to do with the start date of our show? Didn't really make any sense to us. Oh my and then God. it made even less sense. I freaking sense. love this podcast so much. <laughs> this is. 
<laughs> Where else gets, can you tell these it stories? Gets, it gets so much better. So, so then we go downstairs to Nancy Oliver to book uh, uh, cameras because we have to shoot the show. The show's supposed to be on the air. Like we've got to go and shoot the show and it has to be on the air on such and such a date. And uh, so we say, okay, so we need a, we need to book a camera from here to here. And uh, you know, and then we have to figure out where we're going to go, but I think we're going to go to Edmonton or Alberta because we have some contacts there. And uh, why don't you go to Regina? Go to Regina, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> and then she says, yeah, there's no cameras available. And I said, so, okay. So, so we're going to push back the start date from the show for the show. And she said, no, it has to start on the 13th <laughs> and we have to shoot it like between now and the 13th. But yes. we have no cameras, but you can't have a but we can't have a camera. No. Well, how are we supposed to do this? You will figure it out. This is, those are the words out of her mouth. I can see it. I can yeah. see it. So I phone my friends at uh, the cable station, one of the cable stations in Edmonton. And I ask her, Shannon Havard, and I ask her, like, is there any chance any of your cable 10 guys could, you know, take some time off and shoot our show for us? And she checked around and one guy was keen to do it. I can't remember his name. I should. I'm terrible. I can't remember his name. But three quarter inch gear, all the usual just crap. And uh, they wouldn't pay him. They didn't want to pay him a per diem. And they didn't want to pay for, for him to stay anywhere. And we we're like going from Edmonton to Calgary to Red Deer to all these other places for two weeks. And, you're all, and also what people don't know is that you're paid shit. Oh, yeah. It's not like you've got a TV show and welcome to Hollywood. It's like you've got a TV show and here's a bit of money. Well, well, I, I was lucky in the sense that I didn't start off at the programming department. I started off at the marketing department. Ah. So, uh, and I'd been excelling at the marketing department. So oh, well, they were shit, actually, I was in the wrong department. They were actually <laughs> paying me a not unreasonable amount of money, uh, not J.D. Roberts' money, but, you know, certainly better than a starting DJ would have been getting. But I was more concerned about the poor camera guy. We eventually were allowed to, uh, you know, buy him a motel room or something, but they wouldn't pay him. I think I actually managed to weasel some per diem money out of him, or we bought his food with our per diem money or was something. Was he supposed to sleep in the car or something? What was the plan? Hey, how are we supposed to do the show without a camera? <laughs> Nobody had an answer for that either. So the first three Mike and Mike episodes were shot by a Cable 10 cameraman from a cable company in Edmonton. And then when we arrived back from that, we only had like three, four shows in the can. So the show was about to air. And then when we got back, uh, John or Nancy called us and said, um, uh, the Armed Forces is doing uh, uh, entertainment for the troops tour, uh, the Middle East, and none of the VJs will go. And they want to pay to have somebody go. So you guys go. And we were like all right, I'll totally do that. Like, why wouldn't anybody want to do that trip? So, uh, so the next batch of shows we did uh, were from the Middle East. And this time we did have a cameraman, Tony Wanamaker. We went to Lar in Germany. We went to El Gora in Northern Egypt. We went to Sharm el-Sheikh in the, in the Sinai Peninsula. 
We went to Tel Aviv. We went to uh, the Dead Sea. We went to Cyprus. We went to all these places. Wow. And the entertainment tour was being produced by John Allen Cameron, the, the godfather of Celtic music and the father of Stuart Cameron, who you may know, who plays a bunch of bands and plays with Matthew Good and plays with all kinds of folks. He's one of the best guitarists in the country. And we slept around there for an uh, entire month and got an awesome tan and had a killer time. Uh, and then when we finally got back and started to get our, our road schedules together and our cameras together, uh, you know, we could never get cameras in the summer because that's when all the camera guys took their vacations. So we would be doing the Mike and Mike show in the winter, in the prairies, that kind of thing. You know, like, oh, here's Boys of Man, the home of the turtle races in a blizzard. And here's a giant turtle, which also started us doing our whole big things series where you just stop. Okay, well, I'm going to stop you right there because I invite people who listen to the podcast to call in and leave comments or questions. And one came in, which I would like to play for you right now. Hi, Erica. My name is Stacy, and I'm calling from Lloydminster, Saskatchewan. I was a huge Much Music fan during the 90s, and one of my favorite programs was Mike and Mike's Excellent Adventures. And I wondered if you're going to be speaking to either of the mics, if you could ask them, what was the most unique thing that they found in a community? Maybe one or two different communities, something that really surprised them. It was really enjoyable to watch them go across the country and highlight some communities that maybe normally people wouldn't get to see. And that was one of my favorite programs. So I would really like to know if they could answer that question for me. Thank you. Well, that's a tough question, Stacey. Um, Why is it tough? Because it's hard to choose? Yeah, there's just so many, just so many situations that we got ourselves into um, or someone else got us into um, in a place. Uh, I do remember Lloyd Minster. It's a hugely fun day because the border uh, between Saskatchewan and uh, Alberta runs right through the middle of the city. So last call on one side of the city is an hour later than it is on the other side of the city. doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, but I remember the visit there well. I think the big things always drew us to places. Like in many cases, we would go to a place simply because they had a big thing. Uh, the one that killed me was, uh, again, in Alberta, we drove from Edmonton one day to a place called, um, oh, my God, now I'm going to forget the name of the place. Come on, it's only 30 years ago, Mike. How yes, you forget? I know. Glendon. So we leave Edmonton. We're driving to this place called Glendon, which is north of Edmonton. We leave in the middle of the afternoon. And we're going there because we've heard, thanks to Mike Rhodes' dad, who sent us a clipping, that they just built the world's largest pierogi on a fork. And we obviously had to see it. So uh, we're driving. It's taking us far longer. The sun is starting to set. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's going to be dark when we get there. So it is dark. But luckily, this whole thing is new. And there's a big light on it. And it is world's largest pierogi on a fork. And it's about... I don't know, 25 feet high or something. And it looks great. It looks absolutely fantastic. So we go around, do our usual thing, you know, wrap on it. What's it made of? Well, it seems to be fiberglass. Is the fork fiberglass as well? Or is the fork metal, you know, blah, 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 our usual rant. And then I remember walking around to the front of it 
the folded part of the pierogi. And I mean, you know, for all the world, it looked very much like female genitalia. So I'm just making this comment at the end and looking, addressing Rhodes, who's standing there with the cameraman. I said, is it just me or does this look exactly like a, and then that was the outcut for the laugh because you could not possibly miss it. And it looked great. We played it back in the camera and stuff and said, well, you know, at least it was lit. Can you imagine if it wasn't all this stuff? And then we thought, well, we should go. And this um, Glendon is like, there's a store and there's a grain elevator and the giant pierogi. And as far as we could tell, that's about it. So we went to the store thinking that maybe there's some Glendon thing that we could buy. And it's nine o'clock at night or now or something now it's the middle of the week and we open up the door and it's kind of a combination, you know, grocery store, hardware store, drug store, like everything all in one store. And there's a kid behind the counter reading a newspaper and we walk in and I swear to God, this is true. The kid looks up from his newspaper, sees us and goes, Mike and Mike, I was wondering when you guys were going to get here. <laughs> so he sold us some Glendon, Glendon lapel pins and we left. And when we got back to the station, there was a package waiting for us. It was a letter from a letter from the mayor of Glendon with a cassette tape of somebody doing a song about the giant pierogi from Glendon and an open invitation to come back and visit him. And they saw the segment and they just loved it and they were thrilled about it. Fast forward a couple of years later, after that uh, trip to the Middle East, I made friends with this, uh, the PR officer for the armed forces. And uh, while we were in LAR, we heard a bunch of F-18s flying. And I mentioned to him that, you know, I was an Air Force brat. I'd give half a year's salary to fly in an F-18. He said, well, you have a TV show. I said, yes. And he said, uh, well, we can make that happen. So two years later, we went back to Northern Alberta to Cold Lake, which is about an hour north of Glendon, the pierogi capital, and uh, went flying uh, in F-18s. So the day after we did that, we took the pilots that we'd gone flying with and took them to Glendon. And just on a lark, we went down to Glendon because they'd never heard of it. So, my God, you've been stationed in Cold Lake. You don't know the world's largest pierogi on a fork is in Glendon? What the hell? So we drove them down there and we walked into the uh, the community center and it was like pierogi days or something. And we walked in. It's and your lucky day. And the mayor <laughs> lost his shit. He was like, oh, my God, it's Mike and Mike. It got a huge hug out of the guy. They had uh, they had coolers full of pierogies. They pulled the pierogies out. Then I had to share a, 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 a drink of rye and Coke in the can with the mayor. We all had our pictures taken and all the rest of it. It was just an absolute love fest. I always remember that place. And I think maybe... Newfoundland was the other place that we just loved to go to. You know, it was just such a beautiful, different spot, and people were open and friendly. And uh, well, you've been there, so you know what it's like. Love it. But I could literally talk all day about you know the the, the very special parts of almost every part of the country. Well, maybe we'll do that. Maybe you and I will do another piece of the podcast where we just tell stories about Canada, which would I've be really stories. special. I've got stories. I would love that. Years. Yeah, I would love that. Um, so you are just such an interesting guy because you did this for five years 
and you made a huge name for yourself. But at the same time, I think you also expanded what much music was and added to the fabric of what much music was. It wasn't just music. You were talking about culture, which is, you know, the culture of Canada, those, you know, really big things. That's part of the fabric of our great country. And I think you have interesting perspective because you've traveled so much. You've spoken to so many people, some who are, you know, rabid music fans, others, not so much about what made much music so special and what its role was in its heyday. Well, I think it brought the country together in many respects, as you say. Um, part of my job, uh, not dictated to me, but one that I felt very strongly about, which is why I fought to bring cameras on the road during the VJ tours. And uh, because we made a great, a great deal of noise about being you know, the nation's music station, but if you weren't paying really close attention, it was coming from Toronto and it was nothing but Toronto. You weren't getting anything. I mean, Mulligan was fighting hard out on the West Coast with much West. But I also always thought that, you know, there should be a much East, as a, for instance. And, um, and that just wasn't happening and wasn't happening and wasn't happening. And uh, uh, you could see the difference it was making in, in the lives and the careers of Canadian bands who used to you know, bust their asses on the Northern Ontario rock room route in the, uh, in the winter, of course, for some reason, Canadians insist on doing that. You know, you're touring in January and February, March, and God, uh, and, you know, just busting it out. And, and if you weren't getting played on the radio, you were screwed. And one of the things I loved about much music almost more than anything else was, was, was the fact that we didn't pay any attention to, uh, consultants, or we didn't do research. We didn't do any of that shit. You We're sat talking around. like radio stations did. A yeah, lot of people don't like, know that. So that's yes, how that's radio a, stations, mainstream yeah. radio has consultants and they do research and they test audiences and test music and they don't play the music they love. They play the music they think the audience will react positively to. Right. In 10 seconds on a phone. So I love the fact that we would play anything didn't make any difference. It didn't matter if it was reporting at retail, at least in the beginning, it didn't. It didn't mean all of those things meant nothing. So we were breaking bands. A band could get a video on much and two, two weeks later, they could tour the country and sell out rooms. And that is a game changer. And that was the game changing thing about music video period, MTV, much music, and um, all of those stages that spread around the world. Suddenly bands were in people's living rooms, living rooms and there wasn't this gatekeeper keeping the music away from folks. And that was a hugely, hugely important part of, uh, of what much music did. And because of my experience traveling the country, I knew how disenfranchised some parts of the country felt. And, you know, you know, from traveling with me, people fucking love to see us, you know, and the big tickets could only go to so many places. Although, you know, at Halifax's, for instance, we shot a bunch at, you know, big club, the Misty Moon out here, which is famously no longer with us. But, you know, all of those things meant a huge, huge deal. I remember Mike, I'd forgotten I'd even done it, but Mike and I hosted a Northern Pikes big ticket in Newfoundland. I just found online. I was watching it and it was like, oh, yeah, we hosted that. Oh, my God, I forgot completely about that. But we roll into town and it was a big deal when we did that stuff. And so, you know, when I had the opportunity to move to Halifax, 
which many friends in Toronto thought it was absolutely out of my mind, insane. And like, why would you do that? And I'll tell you why, because I knew that that show was coming to an end. Our budgets were being cut every year. At one point we had almost no travel budget. So we would have to react to, you know, people saying, Hey, why don't you come up here to add a coking, you know, near Thunder Bay. And uh, we do uh, snowmobile races on open water in the summer. And I go, that sounds fantastic. I would love to see that. We have no budget. Well, we'll fly you. Then definitely we'll come up there and cover your insane event. Um, but I knew the show was going to end at some point. Why were we... budgets being cut? When? Why? 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 You were doing so well. Much music was doing well at that time. It's the nature of the beast. It's um, um, Budgets were being cut for the same reason that... Um, uh, we weren't playing videos that we liked anymore, you know. Um, I'm not sure exactly when the change in the programming department came. I remember going on a vacation to, uh, this is a true story too, uh, to uh, Jamaica. And Jordy Morgan, who was our uh, much music stringer on the East Coast, he worked for one of our uh, chum-owned radio stations, and he would do the odd interview out here. So I was going on vacation, and Jordy wanted to go on vacation. I said, all right, let's go. So we went to New Grill for like three weeks or something. On my way to the airport from the studio, I looked in the, you know, the big discard box that all the producers threw the shit they didn't want into, that the plebes could come by and go, ooh, that looks nice. So I grabbed this tape on the way out, because I looked at it and went, like the name of the band, recognized the name of the producer again, blah, 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 threw it in my bag. Go to the grill, uh, get there. Um, Jordy's plane was delayed by snow, so the first day I'm just by myself. I wind up putting this this tape in, in my um, portable sound system, which had an auto reverse tape deck. And it was the first Black Crows record. And I completely <laughs> lost my mind. I did nothing but play that thing nonstop for three weeks. So I come back to the station and I want to play it on my show. But I want to make sure that it's not coming out of flow into my show. Wait, so, hold on a second. What show? Mike and Mike. You played music on Mike and Mike? Damn straight we did. Every piece had a video that followed it uh, to the point, and, and we, I swear to God, we played stuff that nobody else played just because it fit the theme of the piece. As a, for instance, we were in North Bay one day and they were actually towing a fighter plane down the highway. To, to, they were retiring it, they were gonna put it on a plinth someplace. And it was a voodoo, CF-103 voodoo, and it was on the road in front of us. And so we got the camera out, shot that, uh, talked about it, and then came back and started looking for songs to play. And there's a song by Bobby Wiseman called Airplane on the Highway. If you can <laughs> and we played it. So we used to play music. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes really obscure, whacked out stuff. And sometimes uh, nothing to do with the piece, but just a great song. So I went down and talked to Craig Halkett and said, uh, I want to play uh, Black Crows, Jealous Again. Uh, in our show, I just want to make sure that you don't have it in the previous block or that you know enough not to program it in the next block. And he goes, uh, oh, that's no problem. We're not playing it. And I went, what are you? What? What do you mean? I said, there's a video, right? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, well, get it. So he gets it. We put it in the screening machine. I watched the video. It's sensational. It's a great. It's one of the best rock songs I've heard in forever. And I said, why aren't we playing it? And he said, and I quote, well, radio's not on it, retail's not reporting it. And I just stopped him there and I went, since when 
did we start giving a shit about what radio and retail were doing? We used to force radio to play stuff. Now we're waiting for radio before we oh, play stuff. Oh, my heart is that breaking. That makes no sense. And I said, okay, we may not be programming it, but I'm playing it. So I went to, so I played it in the show. When was this, Mike? What, do you remember what year this is? Is this the, like, uh, this is like early nineties, like 91 or something, whenever that record came out. Wow. And cause nobody was playing it. And then as luck would have it, the band was playing rock and roll heaven opening for some LA band called junkyard or something. And, uh, I went to see them. I think there were 15 people in the audience. There was more staff there than anybody. So the black crows ripped through a set. I go backstage to talk to them because I'm raving about it and all the thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I told Craig at the time, like, I'm playing this thing. And if this is not a hit record, these sneakers I'm wearing, I will put them in a pot. I will boil them. I will make soup and I'll eat it for lunch for a month. <laughs> and then three months later, they were playing Entex, their own show with 3000 people. And we were playing the fucking record, you know, finally. Right. But that did not happen. There was a sea change in much where it became much more corporate. And just like everything else in a corporation, everybody's trying to make you the most money possible. So whoever's sitting in the GM's job. Plays the shittiest music. It's their job to cut expenses. And our show's ratings were not great. They moved uh, Mike and Mike's show around to the worst time slots in the history of the world. And nobody even knew when it was on. I'm amazed we had an audience for it at all. Uh, but we were necessary for the renewal of the CRTC license. So every year when the license renewal came up, the day before it came up, they needed a report or every two years or whatever it was, they would call us and ask us where we'd been in the country the past year or two. You were the Canadian content. Right. We were the Canadian content. We were the, we were the ghetto, you know, the <laughs> ghetto show, but we took it seriously. And there was a lot of people in the country that did. And I know that because for years I'd get recognized just, because of that show, and it was not one of the not one of much as big marquee shows. Well, actually, when I was watching your your last show, there was graphics that said the most commonly asked question is, "Hey, Mike, where's Mike?" So, where is Mike? Somewhere in Halifax. I haven't seen him in a while. When I moved to Halifax, I tried to convince him to come with me. I said, Andy can act out here. There's a theater company, all the rest of it. They're going to cancel the Mike and Mike show. The writing's on the wall, man. But if we're out east, we could actually do stuff out east because we have no presence out east at all. And uh, he didn't or wouldn't or and he didn't want to for so for whatever reason. And uh, the day the show was canceled, he called me to say that he just heard from Denise and that, 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 to get ready for it because the show was canceled. And I went, okay, you know, and uh, I hung up the phone and uh, Denise called and she said, you know, bad news is we're canceling the Mike and Mike show. And I said, well, it's, you know, that's not any kind of a secret. When it happened, that began my, I am going to have to prove myself to the music community in Halifax because they're going to look at me as just some Toronto asshole who showed up here and I'm being forced down their throats. And uh, I mean, I, it's lucky because I did, I lived in PEI for my grade 12 year of high school. I went to university at Acadia. I've been traveling out with much for years and years and years and years. So I wasn't completely unfamiliar, but it, it was, yeah, I had to be on my toes and I had to cover 
everything from trad to country to alternative, like everything. And the Halifax scene was just starting to take off. Um, the I Halifax have, pop explosion just started. I have a started. quote um, about you. I'm going to read you this quote. Nope. Mike is the patron saint of music. There needs to be a statue of him. Like there's statues of St. Anthony. Lord knows he doesn't make any money. That guy is constantly trying to make his mortgage, his phone bill, yet he is a tireless supporter of musicians. If he were to leave, there would be a void in Halifax. He's built that place and he's cultivated a scene with his own two hands. Now he's talking about you starting the Carlton. Mm, wow. Wow. Well, that's a, you know, <laughs> that's the post much side of things, which is, you know, Halifax has been an interesting place. Uh, like I said, I had an awful lot to overcome. I had to learn how to shoot. I had to learn how to do, you know, basically they sent Hurlbut down here for a day. Dave Hurlbut, our cameraman. Yeah. Yes. Dave Hurlbut, our head cameraman, uh, senior cameraman, sent him down here for like a day with, you know, a lighting kit, a tripod, the beta cam, like all the stuff. And uh, uh, so he thought he was going to give me, you know, like, I don't know what he thought he was going to give me. I think he thought he was going to give me like a two-hour crash course in beta cam. I mean, if you talk to any of the cameramen, they're artists, you know, it's a very, oh, it's a complicated piece of machinery, you know, but when it suits them, it's like, yeah, a monkey could run it. Uh, so he was planning on flying back the same day. Uh, and I was like, no, that's definitely not happening. What are you insane? Uh, so I made him stay. So he changed his flight, got him a hotel room and stuff, and then took him down to the marquee club to teach me how to shoot live music. And then the day after that, I think we did a little interview bit that he helped me out with. So like you learned how to shoot live music in one day. Yeah. In about two hours. Uh, now, to be fair, I'd watched our guys on the road for years. Yes, but it. watching and actually looking through the viewer and, you know, the aperture and focus, that's a completely different experience. It's, yeah, it's, it's a little daunting, but knowing the pieces that you needed to shoot to put together a performance clip, you know, you need this much lead singer vocal, you need this, you know, wide shot, you need a whole bunch of other things to, to put it together. That part I figured out fairly quickly. And the interviewing stuff I'd been doing for years, so that didn't really bother me. And I was very comfortable around the musicians I was talking to. You know, I wasn't in awe of them or anything. Um, there were a couple of cases where I'm pretty sure I was a little kind of <laughs> nervous, nervous about talking to them. But for the most part, um, I, I got along and uh, I did. That was one of the most rewarding parts about working at much was working on that show. The go because, is this going coastal? No, this is much east. This is much east, which I started like months after Mike and Mike stopped. Um, and, you know, I was on the cover of the Coast magazine or, or Halifax's version of Now magazine because the show had finally come and everybody out here was waiting for it. And I've heard from so many people that I've worked with over the years, you know, like somebody from my friend Janest, who's a, who's a music supervisor, who was like living in Yarmouth. And I'd gone out to cover some local band called Burnt Black 
at the time. And uh, I shot them in a crummy club and the sound was terrible and stuff, but they did make a shoddy little video. And I interviewed them and shot it. And she just couldn't believe that somebody from her town of 5,000 people was on much music, you know? So how, how would you shoot it? You would you wouldn't be in the shot. Would you just put the camera on your shoulder and hold the mic like a videographer? Or did you yeah. set the shot up like a tripod and were you in it? No, no I hated tripods. So I would shoot, I would shoot the interviews uh, with the camera on my corner, the corner camera on my shoulder uh, with the microphone videographer style. Um, not too long into the show, much sprang for a, uh, uh, you know, a small budget so I could have a camera assistant who could shoot me on a high eight camera, like the wide shot, that kind of thing. So that's what, you know, rather than turn a tripod around, do re-asks and all the usual tricks that we would do if it was just, uh, uh, you know, a VJ with a, with a cameraman. Uh, and when I didn't have that, you know, I'd get used to shooting. Well, I'd shoot all my throws for much east with a camera just pointed at me and put it in the back of my much music vehicle or I'd shoot into a, uh, you know, the glass of a building or something, a bunch of, you try a lot of creative ways, but X number of throws per show, 50 shows a year, you quickly run out of, you know, gimmicks and that kind of thing. So when I had a camera assistant, it worked out, you know, well, and I could also train somebody else on it and sort of mentor them and stuff. And most of the people that I had working in that position have gone on to do other things, which is great. Mike Campbell, what can you not do? <laughs> like, that's <laughs> I incredible. I can't play an instrument. Really? That's interesting. No. no. How come? Um, when I was in school, uh, I always had the best record collection of anybody. But I was the sports guy, so I played basketball, I played football. I was a quarterback in my high school football team. I was recruited to play football for the Acadia Axemen, uh, which is how I wound up going to Acadia, uh, but decided that I was not going to get any bigger and I didn't want to spend my life in the weight room. But when most people were learning instruments, that's what I was doing. You know, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete or something. Who knows what crazy thing was going through my brain. You were a good baseball player back in the day. I was I was a I pretty good that. athlete. I was a pretty good athlete. Yeah, uh, but that sort of took up my time, uh, so I never did learn the instrument. But I was always good friends with the musicians in in both high school and university, and I could move seamlessly between um, you know the jock crowd and the music crowd. Um, I've often said to people that um, uh, "Dazed and Confused" the movie the guy who's the quarterback of the football, that was me. That was, I was that guy. I was, you know, the nice guy. I was an asshole. I was a nice guy who played sports, but also was deeply into music. I mean, to the point where I left university to take a job in a record store, which is not the smartest career move of all time for most people. So Mike, while you're figuring out how to run an entire TV show by yourself, hosting, shooting, editing, producing, etc. cetera. Uh, are you at that point also starting to manage Joel Plaskett? Yes, that is happening simultaneously as the Much East, like Joel was one of the artists that I interviewed for Much East when he was in his first band, not his first band, but the band, first band that drew attention, Thrush Hermit which I thought was hilarious. 
And I think the first interview I did with the band, he would have been in grade 10 or something. They just released the Smart Bomb EP on Sloan's Murder Records label. And uh, it took me a while to figure that band out. It was like, really? I'm not sure, you know. This is one of the things coming from like mainstream uh, being used to um, major label records and mainstream stuff to, okay, now this is a ground level. This is an indie scene. You know, when I first got here, um, Harper's Bazaar just published that article about, you know, calling Halifax the new Seattle. They just started the Halifax pop explosion. Um, so there was, you know, Sloan, uh, Thrush Hermit, Eric's Trip, Jail, Hardship Post, uh, all these local bands cool blue like there's, there's there's dozens of them the, the halifax was just it was insane with talent at the time and plaskett uh grabbed me immediately he was at the point where he didn't have any management uh, he didn't i think he had an agent he definitely had an agent but he didn't have a manager and i knew that there were record labels interested in him but they wouldn't sign him unless he had management because that's the stupid thing to do. So I knew one manager at the time in Halifax, Sherry Jones, who managed, um, who manages Joel's Joel now, but managed Gordy Sampson and a bunch of other people. Yeah, she managed and I, Kim, Kim Stockwood. And Kim Stockwood. Who I used and to live Shea, with. Yeah. Shay, of mm-hmm. course. I've got a picture of me at the place you lived with, with Kim Stockwood, a kitchen table with John Runyon's. Uh, that was, uh, what street was that on? That was on Mackenzie uh, Crescent. Yes. There we go. So, um, uh, so I, I would try to get Sherry to listen to the record forever and she just wouldn't for whatever reason. I just couldn't get her interested. Maybe she wasn't looking to manage anybody. And, uh, one new year's Eve, I think it was new year's Eve. She got stuck downtown in the snow, uh, uh, like the palace or something at three o'clock in the morning at two 30 in the morning, couldn't get a cab, which is not unusual in Halifax. So on the off chance I was still up, she phoned me and I drove down in the much vehicle and picked her up and, uh, put the CD in the, in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the CD player in the car and cranked it and made her listen to it. And then she was uh, your captive audience. She had, well, she certainly had to be my appreciative audience because I was giving her a ride. So I blasted it. And then there was a showcase event. I took her to see the band, uh, a showcase event with like really good sound lights and everything. And she just blew her away. So she said, well, I would consider managing him, but only if you would co-manage him. And I'd never managed anybody. Just like you'd never shot anything with a camera. So the basics were uh, Sherry and I started a company called uh, Soapbox Racer Entertainment, which uh, I came up with. It's like, yeah, you put this thing together, put it on the top of the hill to push it. And it goes fast down a hill and hopefully you win the race. Uh, It's a nice little graphic. And we started the company specifically to manage Joel, but we hadn't talked to Joel about it. So we had two meetings with Joel and, and Sherry like very, you know, low key coffee at a little coffee shop kind of thing. And after the second one, he kind of looked at us and went, 
all right, let's do it. We shook hands and that was that. Sherry and I used a nice tag team method for management. She would be the daytime person, do all the important stuff, the smart stuff, the lawyer stuff, the label stuff, you know, from, from nine in the morning to six at night or whatever. And then when it came time to schmooze people in clubs or drag them out to the, to the bar to see the band, then that was my job. So I would stay up late with anybody that I could make, listen to the record. I would do all of those things. I'm sure you'd take them all to your tiki bar or tiki club and say, let's not invite Erica. Let's just go here. (laughs) A lot of them. A lot of them. I famously famously played uh, that album for my friend, my very good friend, Steve Poltz who I don't know if you've ever heard of, but Jesus, you should. He's the, he's the single best solar entertainer on the face of the earth. He was born in Halifax. He lives, lived in San Diego. He lives in Nashville now. He's, I, he's played the Carlton 60 times, um, 60, 6-0. We've only been open 13 years. Um, but we had this raging party at the Tiki one night, and this Joel's song, uh, um, Light of the Moon, came on, and Steve just shut up and just, started listening and at the end he said is this the guy you're managing that's the most beautiful song i've ever heard uh and then since put the two of them together steve's produced an album for joel i've had to play shows together um it's a beautiful friendship that i helped make but uh, you really have influenced the music scene in halifax and like i said before you are considered the patron saint of music in Halifax. And I, I think that that is partly due to your time at much being sort of a promotional, but more importantly, when you launched the Carlton, you launched a home for music in Halifax. Um, but again, kind of crazy for you to launch a club since you'd never had done anything like that. It's a large endeavor. Um, what the hell were you thinking? But when I started going down the bar restaurant side of things, it was like, nah, you know, Halifax was still super happening at the time. And it was like, okay, I just want to open a really cool bar with good food and stuff and a place people can hang out and the music will be great. And, and, you know, I'll have a place that we can turn into a stage and I'll book like one artist a month on off days, like Sunday and Monday or something, but artists that will sell a place out solo and can do multiple nights, you know? So the first artist I picked was Joel Plaskett. And the second one I think was Jill Barber. And the third one was, it might've even been Pulse at that point, because I'd seen Steve a bunch of times and he was coming through Halifax. Um, But those shows proved to be so successful that my partners started encouraging me to book more live entertainment. And I'm like, this is a slippery slope. Because once you start going down this slope, people are going to start thinking of it as a venue instead of a really good restaurant, which it is. And uh, sure enough, oh, of course, yeah, I opened the bar in May of 2008. And if you will recall, there was a global financial crisis in the fall of 2008, which murdered business dead for about a year and a half. And that's when I had to start booking more stuff. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, we made sure that our sound system was great. Our sound people were great. I instituted a policy for acoustic shows that if you talk during the show, I'd throw you out, uh, which didn't sit well with a lot of people. But I used to get up on stage and tell people it was in the show description that if you buy a ticket, 
you can't talk through the show. So did people go, you know, you arrogant X much music dude? Did you get that? Probably. Probably. I had all kinds of people like, I paid my money. I should be able to talk. The problem is in our room, the sound system is so good that you can hear a pin drop in that place during an acoustic performance because the acoustics are great and the sound system is perfect. It's an array system. It's a bunch of small speakers everywhere as opposed to just two big speakers moving air towards you. That kind of a sound, if you talk, it doesn't necessarily carry beyond the person you're talking to. If you do it in a room like mine, everybody in the place can hear every word you're saying. It's like, as Amy Mann says, voices carry. No shit. So so you built this beautiful venue, a place where musicians played, people could also have dinner, et cetera. And then you got stuck in traffic. (laughs) And I'm not making um, light of it. I understand that across the street from you, one of the largest government buildings or venues was being built, which basically shut down the entire area that you were in and nobody could get to the Carlton. True? It was the largest development project in Nova Scotia history. It was about a billion dollars. So first they wound up tearing the, the, (laughs) ironically, the building they tore down to make room for it was the Chronicle Herald building, the newspaper building, which used to have hundreds of newspaper people in it who used to like to go across the street for lunch. And that kind of thing. they left? Uh, They tore their building down, so they left. And then there was just a big nothing, just horrible whole square city block full of rats and shit uh, for several years before they started construction. And then they blasted for the better part of a year, five, six stories down where you had to get people had to get in off the sidewalk and dust and dirt and all the rest of it. And then a build which was supposed to take maybe two, two and a half years took five years. Meanwhile, you actually had to go to the media, didn't you? I mean, you you basically were going to lose your place. I certainly did. I, uh, the Carlton has a newsletter, and I used to use the. I used to have an editorial space at the bottom of it called "Rant Me?" question mark, and I would just rag on the mayor, and the councilors, and the developers, and everybody else who was doing nothing to help. You know, for that matter, and you know, just struggling to keep my nose above the water until all of this shit finally finished. But wait. Is it true that you literally had to declare bankruptcy? No, I did not have to declare bankruptcy, but um, it was very, 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 very close. I'd, uh, the first set of investors I had bailed after a couple of years because the, the construction was, start, was starting, business was just terrible. And they wanted out, so they wanted to just shut the business down. I said, no, gee, let, me, let me see if I can find somebody else to help with this. So I found a, a friend of mine, a person of means, who agreed to at least partially buy them out and defer the rest of the buyout to later kind of thing. And then we got a little bit of money to try and uh, you know, renovate the space a little bit because the building across the street was starting to look like it was going to get finished to the point where there would be parking spaces downtown again and all that kind of stuff. But people did not flock back to downtown. It was very, very, very difficult. And it's still like half the businesses on my street closed. But I'd managed to keep my head above water. 
And then finally, like, I just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, so I was trying to sell the place. And I had a bunch of other business owners on the street. My location is great. It's beautiful. Uh, so a lot of people wanted it, like a cut rate price. Oh, yeah. And, so they were just like, see ya. And I was now. No, yeah. Yeah. And I was in no position to, you know, like bargain with anybody. So the a bunch of folks were helping me with the sale and stuff. And everybody and the creditors had all gotten together. And they'd arrived at a price that I would need to sell for to satisfy everybody to the extent that you can satisfy anybody you know banks being the first and foremost i hate them first and foremost uh, on the on the food chain so there were a couple of guys i knew who owned business one who owned a business below me it's press gang restaurant and a new place next to me called the uh, lot six all in the same complex as i was in and we had a handshake deal on that and they were going to buy it from me uh, we had a closing date, all of it, and I'd signed something to say that I was not going to entertain any other offers. So, I'm getting a um, sense that something bad happened. Oh, yeah. So, it's exactly this time of year. It might have even been this same day um, that we're having this conversation in 2017. Uh, it was supposed to close on New Year's, so I'd run the whole place up to the idea that we were closing on New Year's, and then they were going to take over. And then they wanted me to manage the place for a few more months while they figured out what they wanted to do with it. And I was like, fine. Uh, and then two days before, and then leading up to my birthday, which is tomorrow, uh, it was like the 10th of January or something. I get a phone call from the guy who was handling the sale from uh, Deloitte. And he goes, Mike, I don't know how to tell you this, but these guys just withdrew their offer. And I went, what? What? I've been buying all the booze on my personal credit card and everything to keep the place open. And uh, then I realized they've been played for a sucker, that they'd been talking to the landlord, who was also their landlord in the other two places. And they were just going to pull a plug on me, let me go down the toilet and then pick up everything, like all the restaurant gear, everything for free. And uh, I just heard this. The next day, I was supposed to be doing an interview at the Carlton uh, with the local CBC affiliate because uh, they were asking me about Hugh's room, which was closing. And they knew that I'd been selling, that I was in the process of selling the place. So I show up to do the meeting, uh, to do the interview, and the, the, the woman before the, she asked the first, well, the microphone's out. She says, uh, oh, we just heard that the deal you had to sell the place has fallen through. You know, how, how is that going to How do you feel, Mike? Well, kind of. And I was like, <laughs> "Great." How do you, how do you know? Because I didn't tell anybody. Uh. The only person I told was uh, my, my, my good friend, Stuart, from the hotel biz, who's like, kept me sane through most of it. And I said, because it's true. I said, yeah, yeah, that just happened. And she said, so, you know, like what, you know, is, what can you do? You know, like what, can you keep going? You know, like what are the odds? And I said, uh, and this is true also, I said, uh, do you ever see the movie Dumb and Dumber? you know, whatever your name is, Linda. <laughs> and she just looks at me like this. And, you know, the scene where Jim Carrey's character is trying to ask Colin 
uh, Lauren Hawley's character out and she has no interest in it at all. And she's telling him to fuck off. And he says, yeah, but what are the odds? And she says a million to one. So he says, so there's still a chance. That's exactly where I was two days later. So I was going to go belly up on the weekend. This was a Thursday. I think I did the interview on Saturday was going to be the last night of the bar on Friday. I had a meeting downtown. I had friends fly in. I had a couple of friends fly in from other places in the country just for moral support and stuff. And uh, I had a meeting with the Deloitte guy at, at Starbucks on Barrington Street at, uh, at like five o'clock. No, at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I had a bunch of my friends with me. And he said, OK, so here's what's going to happen. Um, the bank is going to move on you probably on Monday. So they're going to take your house. Um, and I don't think there's anything we can do. You know, but here's some people, you know, I don't think that a bankruptcy person can save your house. I think you're going to lose your house, uh, but we'll see. And then, and so all of this is sinking in, right? I've got a roommate at the time. Like, what am I going to tell him? He's, he's homeless now. Like what the fuck am I going to do? And, uh, uh, so the friends that had flown in a couple of other close friends here, we'd already agreed they were going to take me to dinner that night, which they were openly calling the let's take Mike to a nice dinner. So he doesn't kill himself dinner. And, uh, so I went home to get changed to go back downtown to have dinner with my friends. And, uh, at about five o'clock, I got a phone call from the Deloitte guy saying, I was just talking to a lawyer, his name is blah, blah, blah. And uh, I think you should talk to him. You know, I think you should, I think you should talk to him. And I was like, a lawyer at five o'clock on a Friday in January? Like, I thought he was talking about maybe a bankruptcy lawyer or something. So I didn't really know, but he said, yeah, phone him. And I said, what, like now? And he goes, yeah, phone him now. So I phoned the guy and he says, my name's so-and-so, I work for, uh, Stuart McKelvey or something, one of the big law firms in town. He says, I have a client, a person of means, who heard what happened to you and thinks they might be able to help. What? <laughs> I said, what? And he said, yeah, uh, they might be able to help. Would you be able to meet with them on the weekend? I was like, yeah, I 100% could meet with them on the weekend. And he said, great, well, I'll either be in touch or my client will be in touch with you directly. So then I go downtown and I'm sitting there having drinks, waiting to get into you know the restaurant to eat. And I tell this story to everybody and everybody's just looking at me going, are you fucked? And I was like, what? Said, How can you sit there? I mean, what do you mean? with a horseshoe stuffed so far up your ass, how is it possible for you to sit at this moment in time? In the middle of that conversation, I get another phone call from a different guy at Deloitte who's saying, how's your day going? And I'm going, well, it's, you know, just got a lot better. And he goes, oh yeah, what? Because he hadn't heard about this other phone call. So I tell him and he goes, wow, that's interesting because a couple of guys just phoned me. I can't tell you who they are. But if I said their names, you would know exactly who I was talking about. 
And apparently they were out last night and they'd heard about what was happening to you. And they think that they might be able to, you know, like help you. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? So I go back into the room with this other information. So then the lawyer calls me back and uh, he says, uh, uh, my client uh, would like to meet with you on Sunday. Could you meet with her on Sunday? I was like, her? Because he never told me it was a he or a she or whatever. And I said, fuck yeah, of course. So I went down to meet her at two o'clock on the Sunday. Oh, the Saturday night, I left out the Saturday part. The Saturday night part is my birthday. Everybody's heard the news at this point, like everybody. The heartbrokener in town, Stuart Cameron, David Doyle's band, they're playing. Plastic plays, Mays plays. Um, Mark Critch shows up from 22 Minutes. Sean Majumder shows up from 22 Minutes. Everybody pays. Everybody knows it's the end of the bar. Staff's crying. Everybody's fucking crying at this point. People are saying the nicest things about me. Um, except Majumber. <laughs> Majumder at the end of it. <laughs> I'm sitting at the table like this big booth right in front of the stage. Everybody's singing. Stuff. Mo Kenny is singing, you know, uh, I'm a sucker for your face and all this stuff. And it's, it's a fucking love-in. So this is like the second one of these things I've had, except this one's in my own club. And um, uh, then Majumder gets up. He's like, at the very end of the night, Majumder is like, I don't know why everybody's saying all this stuff about Mike Campbell. You know, I was at his place. And, you know, I was at this bar not that long ago. And I had to get up and go to the bathroom. And I came back, you know, and I finished my drink. And I don't remember a fucking thing later, except I woke up in the tiki on the couch and I'd been anally raped. (laughs) Laughing their fucking heads off. Then, of course, everybody, like half the bar shows up back here, tiki. The bands give me all the money I paid them back. People gave me birthday cards full of cash. The next day I go down and have this meeting with this person. I unlocked the door. I made a pot of coffee, unlocked the door. And this woman standing there, it's like, fuck, I know you. She's a customer. Like she used to come to all kinds of shows. Her name's Karen Spaulding. So she'd been a customer and she'd been away for a while. And she'd just come back and she used to come to show. I used to see her, her name on the ticket lists all the time. And if I, if I put her in a lineup, she's like late fifties. I learned later she was like 60. If I put her in a lineup with a bunch of people and said, which one's the rich one? Never in a million years, you would not guess. She's just not that way at all. She's an accountant by trade, all of this stuff. So we have this, I tell her this whole fucking story. I tell her the whole story of getting fucked over and all of this shit. And she goes, I will buy it for what you were selling it to the other people for. Um, But only if you stay. And keep booking the bands. Well, that's a tough deal, huh? You had to think about that one for a long yeah. time, right? Yeah. Give me a couple of hours. I'll get back to you. I was like, fuck yeah, absolutely. And she said, and we have to keep the live music thing going because that's what I'm doing this for. So I took a deep breath. It was like, Jesus, okay. And she said, okay, so tomorrow, we said, okay, you're good with this? Yes, I'm good with this. We shake hands. She said, okay, now I turn it over to the lawyer's and all the people for the paperwork and all that stuff. But tomorrow I will start taking care of things. So she, she became the bank while it took the time for 
the, the new company to be struck and the liquor license to be transferred and all the rest of it. And she kept paying me through the whole thing. So she's both a hero and a guardian angel. Ah, Jesus. I tell that story to people and I... It's karma, baby. I don't even know what to say about it's it. It's karma. You have given so much to Canada. Canada just gave it back to you. I'm going to ask you one last question. So you were given the Industry Builder Honor at the 25th anniversary of the ECMAs. You also received the second annual Scene Builder Award from the Halifax Pop Explosion. I know that the Carlton is littered with awards that you've earned or been given. Um, some people consider that a symbol of success. Um, for you, tell me, uh, would you consider yourself successful? And if so, why or why not? I consider myself successful when I, when I give my time to think about it um, by any metric except the financial one. Uh, I mean, you know, like you, I think, doing the jobs that I've done, it's more important. The, the work is more important than, uh, you know, owning three cars or owning a giant place or something like I'm not broke. I have a beautiful house that I bought in Halifax when houses were cheap and they are no longer cheap. They're very expensive. And my house is getting very expensive. So it's the only investment I have at this point. I pulled equity out of it to keep me alive but at the end, I'm counting that there'll be more equity than I'm going to need in my twilight years because I'm not even thinking about stopping work, you know? You've gone on to do a bunch of things. I'm talking to a bunch of folks about some really interesting projects that probably have to do with this garage, much the same thing. Um, we've been talking, I've been talking with a bunch of friends out here about starting a 50-watt radio station called a Squirrel FM. Uh, which uh, will outfit this place with cameras so it'll be viewable. Uh, we can go over the air in the Halifax region, plus uh, online, of course. Uh, I've had musical performances in this garage. Gordy Johnson from Big Sugar's played here. Plaskett's played here. A bunch of other people have played here. There's lots of things that I can do with the room. The Carlton I'll stay involved with for as long as I can. Uh, it's... Uh, I don't know what I'd do with myself, what I would do with myself if I wasn't working. So I still feel like there is still time for me to get rich, Erica. You know, I mean, there's still time. Um, but that isn't what I do, what I do for. I would probably do it if nobody paid me. Uh, and being able to be at this stage and think, yes, you know, I do have all I need at this point. And there's something you can look forward to, not anytime soon, but at some point in your life, you too can collect CPP to old age pension. And that makes all the difference. And on that note, Mike Campbell, oh my God, this time with you has been precious. Thank you so much. You're an amazing storyteller. Before I met you, you were into the music business and you were a young guy working you know, at uh, record stores and then a, and a label. And look at you now. You are the force behind the Halifax music scene and you continue to reinvent. So I think you're just awesome. And um, 
maybe one day you'll actually invite me to your fucking tiki lounge and and <laughs> that would be nice by the way i'll do better than that okay i will cook dinner for you in my beautiful house so i'm also an accomplished chef at this point wow yeah. i'm so in and <laughs> and as for you my awesome listener if you are still listening to this conversation, which is going to really clock in at the longest conversation so far and well worth it, I may add, if you enjoyed today's conversation and how can you not, please remember to rate our show, hopefully with five stars, review it and definitely subscribe. So many super cool interviews to be posted. You know, Mike Campbell hasn't even listened to the show yet. So you're going to have to catch up, Mike, because we have so many already posted. Okay. Oh, I totally am. For those of you who would like to be a part of the show, I've set up a phone line. So the number to call if you'd like to be a part of the show is 833-972-7272. If you missed it, I'll give it to you again. Um, But in terms of calling in, Listen, you can call in and share stories. You can suggest who I should interview next. Maybe maybe you met one of the on-air people when we were touring across the country with Mike Campbell. Uh, you can reach me on my social platforms like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm everywhere. Kind of live online. So again, Mike Campbell, thank you so much for spending this time with me and for filling me up with all your stories. And for those of you listening, I will see you hopefully next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com podcast produced in collaboration with steve anthony productions editing and coordination of flower communications inc copyright 2020 another sound off media company podcast i'm jeff woods and i'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it he just was one of those people he, he stood out he was a magic guy he really was a magic guy all, we all have force he had the same amount of force as we all have this was before Led Zeppelin Robert was full on I mean he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him he had the hair the jeans the whole thing you know and he was amazing the Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts all the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com